Chapter Two of the Calico Cat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Calico Cat by Charles Minor Thompson. Chapter Two. Meanwhile, at the Edwards house, life had grown suddenly interesting. When the report of the gun reached Jim, he had stopped pawing over the apple barrel and was sitting on the upper step of the staircase at the extreme end of the loft, slowly munching an apple and thinking. Jim was a healthy, active boy with no more sense than naturally belongs to a boy of fifteen and with a lively imagination, which had been most unfortunately overstimulated. Without a mother, and with a father who paid him scant attention, he read whatever he liked, and as a result, his head was full of romantic road agents delightfully kind to little crippled daughters at home, fierce pirates who supported aged and respectable mothers, and considerate bandits who restored valuable watches when told that they were prized on account of tender associations. His imagination had been still further fed by certain local legends and happenings, highly colored enough to excite the keenest interest. Elmington is, as has been said, near the Canadian border. The place abounds in tales of smuggling, and the popular gossip, as gossip everywhere has a pleasing way of doing, associates the name of the most respectable and unlikely people with disreputable ventures of the smugglers. Of course, a story of contraband trade is the more striking if the narrator can hint that the judge of probate, or the most stern of village deacons, might tell a good deal if he were disposed, and there are always persons ready to give this sort of interest to their yarns. In Elmington lived Jake Farnham, an ex-deputy marshal, and an incorrigible liar, about whom gathered the boys jim among them to hear exciting stories of chase and detection exactly as boys in a seaport town gather about an old sailor to hear tales of pirates and buccaneers and jake loved to hint darkly that the best people shared in the illicit traffic with it all jim's sense of right and wrong was in a fair way to become hopelessly mixed exactly as all boys at the seashore are prone to believe that a pirate is on the whole an admirable character so these border boys and especially jim had come to feel only with more excuse because of the generally indulgent view of the community that smuggling is an occupation in which any one may engage with credit and which is much more interesting than most now it is not likely that jim's father a stern secretive obviously prosperous man with an intermittent business which took him back and forth across the border could in all this gossip escape a touch of suspicion no one of course denied that he really did deal in lumber and cattle the fact was obvious but there were hints and whispers shrewd shakings of the head and more than one guessed that all edward's profits didn't come from cattle no nor lumber neither latterly these whispers had become more definite pete lamoury 
a French Canadian, whom Mr. Edwards had hired as a drover and abruptly discharged, was spreading stories about his former employer, which made Blackbeard the pirate seem like a babe in comparison. Pete was not a very credible witness, but still, building upon a suspicion that already existed, he succeeded in adding something to its substantiality. These stories had come to Jim's ears, and Jim was delighted. The consideration that, were the stories true, his father was a criminal, did not occur to him at all. Like the foolish, romantic boy he was, he was simply pleased to think of his father as a man of iron determination, cool wit, unshakable courage, whom no deputy sheriff could overmatch, and who was leading a life full of excitement and danger, the smuggler king. The only thing that Jim regretted was that his father did not let him share in these exploits. He knew he could be useful, but his father's manner was habitually so forbidding that Jim did not dare hint a knowledge of these probable undertakings, much less any desire to share them. Poor Mr. Edwards. He loved his boy, but he did not in the least know how to show it. Silent, with a sternness of demeanor, which he was unable wholly to lay aside, even in his friendliest moments, much away from home, and unable to meet the boy on his own level when he was there, deprived of the wife who might have been his interpreter, he had no way of becoming acquainted with his son. Anxious in some way to share in Jim's life, he took the clumsy and mistaken method of letting him have too much pocket money. Yet if Jim, thus unguided and overindulged, had gone astray in his conduct, Mr. Edwards was not the man to know his mistake and take the blame. He had in him a rigidity of moral judgment, a dryness of mind, which made it certain that if Jim did do what he disapproved, he would visit upon him a punishment at once severe and unsympathetic. The man's air of cold strength excited in the sun fear as well as admiration. His reserve kept his naturally affectionate boy at more than arm's length. Poor Mr. Edwards! Poor Jim! Misunderstanding between them was as sure to occur as the rise of tomorrow's sun. Pat on Jim's speculation about his father's stirring deeds, the gunshot came echoing through the silent barn. Jim ran to the loft door and looked out. He saw smoke curling up from the window of his den and knew that it was his own gun that had been fired. Back in the room, a vague, masculine figure moved hastily out of the door. Jim looked toward the orchard and caught sight of another man disappearing in the trees. He was wild with excitement. As he knew that his father was the only person in the house, he was sure his father had fired the shot. The tales that he had heard, his belief in his father's life of adventure, made him conclude that here was some smuggler's quarrel. So vividly did the notion take possession of his inflamed imagination that nothing henceforth could shake it. He simply knew what had happened. And his father had fled, leaving all the evidences of his shot behind him. Jim's loyal heart bounded. Here he could help. He turned, raced across the loft, clattered down the steep, cobwebby stairs, slipped through the shed passage, through the kitchen, and on into its own room. He knew what to do. 
Nothing must show that the gun had ever been used. He set feverishly to work. He swabbed out the weapon and hung it on its rack over the mantel. He tossed the rags into the fireplace and covered them with ashes. He put the shot pouch and the powder flask into their proper drawer. Then he pulled a chair to the table and set himself to a pretended study of Caesar. If anyone should come, it would look as if he had been quietly studying all the morning. All this had cost considerable self-denial, for, of course, he boiled with curiosity about the man in the orchard. He did not dare to go out there. But now, stealthily glancing out of the window, he saw his father returning from the garden with long strides. Jim understood. His father, going out the front door, had slipped round to the side of the house so that it would look as if he had come from the street. He was not surprised that his father looked stern and angry. That fellow must have done something mighty mean, he thought, to make his father shoot and he admired at once the magnanimity and the skill which had merely winged the man, as he supposed, by way, presumably, of teaching him a lesson. Then, struck by the boldness and openness of his father's return to the house, Jim suddenly felt that he had been foolish, that the cleaning of the gun had not been needed. What man would dare, after such a lesson, to complain against his father? Mr. Edwards walked straight into Jim's room. Aroused from his nap by the shot, he had leaped to the window and seen the man fall. He had then turned and run downstairs so quickly that he had not seen the fellow half rise and crawl into the bushes. And, having reached the spot, he was much relieved, if somewhat staggered, to find no body. He did find tracks, for this was a plowed ground, but they told him nothing of the wounded man, except that he had left in a hurry on a pair of rather large feet. He looked about for a while, and then started toward the house, determined to have an explanation with Jim. He knew Jim's gun by the sound of its report, and felt no doubt that the boy had fired the shot. What sort of culpable accident had happened? Suffering still with the splitting headache which he had been trying to sleep off, angry with Jim for his carelessness, concerned lest the man were really injured, Mr. Edwards was in his least compromising mood. How did it happen? He asked without preface. His tones were harsh, and he fixed Jim with stern eyes. How did it happen? repeated Jim in pure surprise. Certainly his father knew much better than he how it had happened. Speak out! said Mr. Edwards impatiently. How did you come to shoot that man? I want to know about it. Me, cried Jim in complete bewilderment. I, I haven't shot any man, father. You know I haven't. Mr. Edwards, never a man of nice observation, and now bewildered with anger and headache, took his son's genuine astonishment for mere pretense and subterfuge. Were not the facts plain? I don't want any nonsense about this, he said incisively. I heard your gun. I saw the man fall. No one else but you could possibly have fired it. It's useless to lie, and I won't stand it. Tell me at once what happened. I didn't shoot him, father. You know I didn't, 
reiterated Jim, more and more dumbfounded. I don't know how it happened. Honest engine, I don't, father. Mr. Edwards' mouth shut tight. He swept the room with his eyes until they rested upon the gun in the rack over the mantelpiece. He stepped forward, took it down, and examined it. Holding it in his hands, he gazed about the floor. A rag, which the ashes in the fireplace had not wholly covered, caught his attention. "'You cleaned the gun and put it away,' he said grimly. "'Then you tried to hide the rag with which you cleaned it.' And he touched the bit of cloth sticking from the ashes contemptuously with his foot. "'What do you expect me to think from that?' Jim was silent. The boy was unlike his father in many ways, but they were alike in this. They both were proud. Each would meet an unjust accusation in silence, and Jim was beginning to show another of his father's characteristics. A still anger was beginning to burn in him against this man who accused him of a deed which he himself had done and he felt rising within him a stubborn will to endure, not to surrender. If his father was going to act like that, why let him? "'Where is your shot pouch?' asked Mr. Edwards. Jim motioned toward the drawer. "'Is your powder flask there, too?' "'Yes.' Mr. Edward was silent. After all, he was a just man. He was trying, as well as his headache would let him, to see things straight. "'It's plain what happened,' he said at last. "'You had an accident and got frightened. You cleaned your gun. You hid the rags. You put away your ammunition. You got your books and pretended to study. You're afraid to tell the truth now.' Jim's face flushed hotly, but he kept silent. Such assurance! such cruelty he had never imagined. If this was what smugglers were like, if this was a sample of their tricks, I'll give you one more chance to tell the truth, said Mr. Edwards. Did you do it? No, I didn't, said Jim, and his jaw snapped closed like his father's. Very well, said Mr. Edwards. I'll leave you until you change your mind. You will stay here. Sarah will bring you bread and milk at supper time. If you're willing to talk to me then, you may tell her that you'd like to see me. He turned to go, then paused. It's a serious matter, and all the facts are against you. It would go hard with you in court. It will go harder if you stick to your stubborn and foolish lie. One thing more, if you don't choose to tell the truth, you will have to reckon with the law as well as with me. Mr. Edwards, upon this, shut the door and departed. His was a stern figure, but the hurt within was very sore. This, then, he reflected bitterly, was the kind of boy he had. He suffered deeply at the discovery, which for him was unquestionable. Jim felt outraged, he had done his loyal best to save his father from the consequences of his rash act, and now, with incredible ingenuity and cool injustice, his father was using his son's acts of helpfulness to make it appear that he had done the deed. Without a scruple, his father had made him a scapegoat. 
Jim told himself that he would gladly had taken the blame had his father, as chief of the band, demanded the sacrifice of this, his devoted follower. Nay, more, he would have endured the ordeal without a murmur, had his father, deeming it unsafe to enter into formal explanations, only hinted to him that this was a farce which they two must play together. If his father had only winked at him, surely he might have done that with safety. But not to be admitted to the secret, not to be allowed to play the heroic part, to be used as an ignoble tool by a father who neither loved him nor knew his courage, that was too much. He would not betray his father, no, a thousand times no, but the day would come. The afternoon dragged on. Jim sat there in his room, looking out into the pleasant sunshine, conscious that the boys were playing three old cat in the field not far away, as rebellious and magnanimous, as hot and angry, as heroic and morally muddled a boy as one could wish to see. And looking at the affair from his point of view, not many people will blame him. It is delightful, of course, to have a pirate chief for a father, but what if he makes you walk the plank? It is amusing to think of Mr. Peasley and Jim each shut up in his respective room, but if Mr. Peasley, in his gloomy parlor, faced by the crayon portrait of his masterful wife, a vase of wax flowers under a glass dome, the family Bible on a marble-topped table, and three stiff, horsehair-covered chairs, had the advantage of being able to leave at any moment, he was even more perturbed in mind. Terrible, awkward mess, he kept repeating to himself as he mopped his damp forehead with his handkerchief. Terrible, awkward. And indeed, it would be awkward for a respectable citizen with political aspirations to be accused before a grand jury, of which he is a member, of assault with a dangerous weapon upon an inoffensive man. Mr. Peasley's reflections rose in a strophe of hope and fell in an anti-strophe of despair. "'Tain't likely it hurt him any, just a bird shot,' said Hope. Bird shots mighty irritating, especially to a wrathy fellow, said Despair. And alternating thus, his thoughts ran on. Bird shot'll show I didn't have any serious intent, but maybe a piece of the marble struck him. He went off mighty lively. Don't seem as if he'd been hurt much. More scared hurt, likely. But he might have been hurt bad. Arm or something, maybe. Marble, taint anything but baked clay, split all to pieces, probably, but ye can't tell. I've heard ye can sheet a taller candle through an inch plank, and that's considerable softer than a marble, and that pesky cat's just as frisky as ever. Had anyone seen him? There certainly had not been anyone in the street, but where had been Mr. Edwards? Jim, the housekeeper. Where had his own wife been? There were windows from which she might have seen him returning, some from which she might even have seen him fire the fatal shot. But pshaw, there now, probably no one had seen him at all, not even his wife, not even his victim. Probably no one would ever find out. 
must have been some worthless feller stealing apples mebby who won't dare make a fuss tain't likely i'll ever hear anything of it tain't no use saying anything till something happens what folks don't know hurt em none the structure of comfort which he thus built himself was shaky indeed but it had to serve he nerved himself to meet his wife he must not excite her suspicion by too long an absence she was doubtless full of curiosity for of course she had heard the shot and would expect him to know what it meant it would not do to seem to enter the house by the front door sacred to formal occasions so sneaking outdoors again he slipped round to the side of the house and with much trepidation went into the kitchen his wife began the moment she saw him well of all the crazy carryings on she cried what's the edwards boy firing off guns for right under peaceable folks windows i'm gonna speak to mr edwards right off now don't ye seraphty don't ye said mr peaslee in alarm relieved as he was to find himself unsuspected he did not like the idea of having his wife pick a quarrel with mr edwards for what he himself had done the less said about that shot the better he would be pleased for the land's sake why not i should like to know well now seraphty i wouldn't that edwards boy ain't more of a boy than most boys i guess always seemed a real peaceable little feller and edwards is kinder touchy i guess it might make hard feelin'. twouldn't look well for us to speak being newcomers so i wouldn't seraphty i wouldn't maybe some time i'll slide in a word just slide it in a kinder easy if he does it again and mr peaslee looked appealingly at his wife through his big spectacles his eyes looking very large and pathetic through the strong lenses humph said his wife unmoved i ain't afraid of edwards if you be nor could she be moved from her determination mr peaslee was vastly disturbed but presently he forgot this small annoyance in greater ones that evening after tea, when he went up to the post office, he heard that Pete Lamoury had been shot by Jim Edwards and was now in bed with his wounds. Jim's arrest was predicted. Young Farnsworth, who kept the crockery store, told him the news, and presently Jake Hibbard, the worst shyster in the village, shuffled in, noticeable anywhere for his suit of rusty black, his empty sleeve pinned to his coat, the green patch over his eye, and his tobacco-stained lips. He confirmed the report. Pete's hurt bad, he said, shaking his head. Hurt bad. I've taken his case. Young Edwards is going to see trouble. The speech frightened poor Mr. Peaslee, and he was hardly reassured by the skeptical smile of Squire Tucker, and his remark that he would believe that Lamoury was hurt when he saw him. The squire had small faith in either Lamoury or Hibbard. He knew them both. But Mr. Peaslee returned home with dragging feet. Silent and preoccupied all the evening, he went to bed early, but not to sleep. Long he lay awake and tossed, while the calico cat wailed on the rear fence, exultant, triumphant, insulting. 
and when he finally did get to sleep, he dreamed that he was being prosecuted in court by, was it Jake Hibbard with the green patch over his eye, or the calico cat with the black patch over hers? He could not tell, study the fantastic, ominous figure of his prosecutor as he would. End of chapter 2